trying to get back to the basics of great products. Power comes from sharing information. I try to convince people to slow down. Free. Yeah. Open. This is the Soak Dice Podcast. Hi, welcome to the Soak by Slush Podcast. Uh, I'm Anna, and with me in the studio, or actually in the distance studio in Copenhagen, is Isaac. Isaac, how are you doing? I'm doing great, Anna. How are you doing? Yeah, I'm doing good as well. And with us as a guest is April Dunford, uh, a positioning uh, product positioning guru. Do you want to introduce who you are and what you do? Um, yeah, I'm I'm April. I like that product positioning guru. I think I'll just take that. Um, <laughs> I'm a I'm a consultant. I work with tech companies. My focus is very very specifically on positioning. Um, but before that, I spent 25 years as a repeat vice president of marketing at a series of successful startups. So that's me, and it's good to be here. It's it's awesome to have you here. I understand you've also written a book about the topic. Oh yes, I have. I wrote a book. It's called Obviously Awesome, um, and it is it, you know on the topic of positioning. Big surprise. Fantastic. Um, so to start out with, um, how did you get into products and product positioning? What's your backstory? Uh, you've said that you're obsessed with product positioning. So how did that come to be? Yeah, so, uh, you know, <clears throat> I'm a bit of an accidental marketer. So I went to university, I studied systems design engineering, but when I finished, I happened to get a job at a startup as a product marketer. And so I sat in the marketing department, even though I didn't know anything about marketing. And the first project that I worked on, we had a product that we repositioned. And the original positioning that the product had um, was bad and the product was failing. Um, we thought it was desktop productivity software. But what we found when we put it out in the market is that customers were using it in a completely different way than we imagined. We repositioned it as an embeddable database for mobile devices, and the product absolutely took off. And so we grew really, really quickly. We ended up getting acquired by a big company in Silicon Valley. Um, Shortly after the acquisition, my boss quit, and I don't know why, but they put me in charge of the group. So now I'm, you know, fairly new in marketing, but I'm running this great big team. We had three or four other products that we inherited in that acquisition, and I repositioned those as well. And so really early in my career, um, I got introduced to the power of positioning in a really extreme way that we had a product that looked like a total failure that all of a sudden became this super high growth thing and went on to produce hundreds of millions of revenue. So from that point forward, I was like, wow, this positioning thing is really important. If we get it right, it can really change the fortunes of not just the product, but the company. Um, and yet the other thing I noticed is that we don't actually know how to do it. Like we don't actually have a methodology for doing it. So <clears throat> the first time I did it, we were just kind of messing around. We just muddled our way through it. Uh, when I landed at the bigger company, I thought, well, there must be people here that know how to do this properly. There must be, you know, and we'll follow the proper methodology. And it turned out there actually wasn't one. And so for the next 10 years or so, um, I was kind of focused on gradually over time building a repeatable methodology that we could use that would get us to some good positioning without just kind of mucking around to do it. Can you uh, open up 
uh, a bit what this methodology is because I mean we talk about product positioning it's such a huge area where there's so much to think about you have to like when you make a new product you basically have a new thing in the world that you then not only have the opportunity but the responsibility to sort of define what it is and the surrounding context and everything and it's it can be so complex so what what is this methodology that you're you're talking about yeah so you know if you think about it what we've got when we build something new, right? We like, let's say we, you know, we've got a new idea for something. The first thing we do usually in startups is we'll go and do some customer discovery. So we'll go out and we'll interview customers. And what we'll come up with is what I would call a positioning thesis. So the positioning thesis kind of says, look, we assume this is who we compete with. This is how we're better than the competition. This is the value that we alone can deliver for customers. Um, these are the kind of customers that are going to love it. And therefore, this is the market that we intend to win. <clears throat> Most of the time, we don't actually do that, um, thinking about it in those five components. But we do have this idea that, you know, this is how we're going to win in the market. Then we get it out in the market. And does it work? You know, usually our thesis is partially correct, but partially not correct. And so we'll have to make some adjustments. Now, a lot of companies don't actually roll with those adjustments very well. Like they have a thesis. If the thesis proves to be wrong in part or in total, they're just going to say, well, that's it. The thing has failed. That's, you know, we throw it out. We're going to go do something else. Most of the time, though, it's only partially wrong. And so we actually need to adjust the positioning to then go chase the market that we really have a good chance of winning. My methodology is really focused on how do we do that adjustment? So we've got it out in the wild. We've got a, a certain number of customers. We're starting to see the patterns. How do I actually lock down the positioning so that we can really put our foot on the gas, marketing and sales and grow really quickly? So how we do that in my methodology is we start by getting a really good grip on who do we have to beat in order to win a deal? That's step one. So what are the competitive alternatives to what we do? And that that's kind of two buckets of things. Like one is I got to beat status quo in the account. So whatever the customer is doing today, which might not even look like a competitor, it might be using an intern or using a spreadsheet. So I got to beat that in order to win some business. I also got to beat any other competitor that they've put on a short list. So I need to understand first, who do I have to beat to win a deal? Once I have that stake in the ground, then I can say, okay, here are all the things, the capabilities that my product has that the alternatives don't. And this is easy. I can usually fill a whiteboard full of this stuff. I got all kinds of stuff that they have that, that we have that they don't. Then I can take those capabilities and I can map them to value. So, so what for each of those capabilities? So what for customers? And what we're trying to do is get to two or three value themes to say, look, this is the differentiated value, the value that only we can provide to customers. That gets us to our differentiated value props. Once we have that, then we can say, all right, well, who cares a lot about that value? I could go sell to anybody, but not all customers care the same about the kind of stuff that we do. So if I ask myself, what are the characteristics of a target account that make them care a lot about my value? That's kind of a way to back into how do I describe a really best fit customer or identify a best fit customer? And then the last bit is market category where you say, all right, so now that I know all of that, I'm asking myself, what is the best context to position that product in such that this value 
is obvious to these folks I'm trying to target. So that gets me to my best market category. So that's kind of at a super high level how my methodology works. That's really interesting. Um, talking about competitors, you've mentioned that sometimes companies focus too much on uh, co like ghost competitors and that can kind of lead them astray. So uh, do you want to elaborate on that a little bit? Yeah, like generally if I go into a company and I say, who do you compete with? Usually they give me this giant list of companies. And, and a lot of times I think it's, it's like, it's like theoretical, <laughs> you know, like these are all the, I went to the Google machine and these are all the companies I found when I Googled, you know, like these are all the folks in the land that kind of do something kind of like what we do. Um, but then if you actually go to your sales team and say, who do we lose to? Who else gets on the list? And, or, or ask the question, what would a customer do if you didn't exist? That's a really different list that you end up with. So you'll end up with, first of all, you'll end up with whatever status quo is there. So that might be use a spreadsheet, hire an intern, just do this manually. And we don't, we're not used to thinking about that as competition, but it is in the minds of customers. It's an alternative way of getting, getting the thing done. And then the second thing is, you know, there might be a thousand companies in the land that sort of sound like what you do, but if a customer doesn't know about them, if they never land on a short list with you, then they just don't matter from a positioning perspective. It doesn't mean you don't ever keep your eye on them or you're not sort of tracking them, especially on the product side of things. It doesn't mean you're not tracking them because of the future, they might be a competitor of yours, but today they're not, they're just not giving you any static. And so in my opinion, your positioning, you don't have to position against ghosts. <laughs> I don't have to position against customer competitors I don't actually see in deals. So, uh, you know, and if we do start seeing them in a deal in the future, we'll adjust our positioning to compensate for that. So this first step of really understanding who your competition is, is super important. If you get it wrong, it can really mess up your positioning. So for example, I'll get startups that'll come to me and they'll say, hey, uh, we got this thing, it's amazing. And I'll say, okay, well, who's your competition? And they'll say, well, you know, they give me the big list of little startups nobody's ever heard of. And I say, well, how are you better than them? And they'll say, ease of use, man, ease of use. Because if you look at all those things, it takes 29 clicks to get a thing done. But with ours, it only takes two clicks. So, you know, we're going to win on ease of use. I say, okay, that sounds good. But do you actually ever see any of these competitors in a deal? You ever lose a deal to them? And they'll be like, no, no. I'm like, what do you lose to? And they say, we lose to do nothing. We lose to, you know, the company just decides they're not going to do anything. And I'm like, well, they're not actually doing nothing. Like, how do they get it done in the company? And I'll say, well, they just like hire an intern or something. Ah, so your real competition is the intern. <laughs> and here you are positioning that the, the whole reason you want to buy me is because of ease of use. It's, it's like, do you know what's easy to use? The intern is easy to use. You're never going to beat the intern on ease of use. Like the intern's super easy. I'm like, Joey, get me a coffee, come back, fill out the spreadsheet. Like it's super easy to use. But there's lots of things that the intern sucks at. Like the intern makes mistakes. The intern quits on you. The intern doesn't understand the profile of an account and, and have a memory of that. Like there's a thousand million things that your software does that the intern couldn't dream of doing. 
Um, but if I don't understand that the intern is actually my competition, I'm not actually going to position around any of that stuff. So understanding what your real competition is, is super important for everything you do downstream in positioning. So is one implication in this almost that it's important, yes, to understand uh, your own products uh, placement or I mean positioning, but also your competitors' products positioning. That's also an equally important thing to understand from an outsider perspective. You need to under you need to be able to look at your competitors in the same way that customers do, right? So mm. think about how customers buy in B two B in particular. Like one thing that we don't consider often enough is the idea that your purchaser has never bought software like this before. So, so let's let's think like you know you're you're you know the, the VP finance wakes up and says you know what sucks this accounting software sucks and we need to get some new accounting software and they look at their director and says you dude go find us some new accounting software and the guy's like crap I never bought accounting software before I, I don't know how to purchase accounting software I don't know what my options are I don't know like the first thing they got to do is make a short list. And so how do they do that? They don't even know what their purchase criteria are. And we actually make it really hard for customers to do that because all we do is talk about ourselves. And so what the customers are actually looking for in a purchase process generally is insight in the market. So what's important and what isn't? What do you do that's different than everybody else? So they're not looking at you in isolation. The first thing they have to do is figure out how do I make choices? How do I make a good choice? How do I not get fired for the software that I'm buying here? <laughs> and so we need to actually understand how customers view capabilities across us, but not just us, but our competitors, because we need to understand what makes us different and special. What gets us on the short list versus not getting us on the short list? Where can we beat the other alternatives they have out there? And like I say, the other alternative might be a spreadsheet. To take a step back uh, and kind of continue on what we're going at here, um, how would you define product positioning, you said that going to different companies, there wasn't a clear process and maybe not even a clear definition of what product positioning is. So how do you define it and why is it important? Yeah, so um, I think positioning is really deeply misunderstood and um, it's getting better, I gotta say, in the last year or so, I have smarter conversations about positioning than I did a few years back. but. A lot of times when I started this doing this work, I would say, okay, well, I'm, you know, what I'm focused on is positioning. And people say, oh yeah, I know what that is. That's messaging. And I'm like, eh, no, actually messaging is different. <laughs> and they say, oh, that's like your tagline. We're coming up with a tagline. I'm like, no, actually, no, that's different too. Or they, the, my pet peeve is people talk about brand positioning. They're like, we're doing brand positioning. And I'm like, well, I'm not sure what that is because there's branding and there's positioning and th those two things are actually totally separate. So in my mind, branding, messaging, your tagline, which I just consider a subset of messaging, that stuff comes from positioning, but the positioning has to come first. I can't do branding until I understand who the brand is for, right? I can't write messaging until I understand what's my differentiated of value against which competitors. So I need the fundamental pillars of positioning. I need to figure that stuff out first before I can go do branding or messaging or any of that stuff. So in my definition, 
um, positioning defines how your product is uniquely qualified to be a leader at something that a well-defined set of customers cares a lot about. Now that's a bit of a mouthful, but you know it's it's going to define the five things. It's going to define who's my competition, how am I different, what is my differentiated value, what customers am I actually going after here, and what is the market category that I intend to win. So it, it's the definition of those five things. That's what it is. Continuing on something that you said about brand positioning, um, so should companies do brand positioning? or product positioning, or both? And what's the relationship between those two? Yeah, so in, in here's how I like to think about it. There is um, There are different levels of positioning within a company if you have multiple products. So, um, you know, at a very simple level, if I'm a startup and I have one product, then the product positioning and the company positioning is the same, because you only have one thing. Like <laughs> there isn't anything else. Like there, there, there's no other capabilities that the company has. You, you're just, you're a company, you do one thing. It's like Slack, right? We have one product, one company. There's no difference between the product positioning and the company position. But things get a little bit more complicated when you have multiple products. Um, so for example, when I worked at IBM, which is a company with a lot of products. Um, and so at IBM, we had this kind of cascading levels of positioning. There was the company positioning, which answered the question, why do I want to do business with IBM? <laughs> and the answer to that was, well, we have hardware that at least it was back then. I have no idea what the positioning is now, but back when I worked there, they'd say, well, why would you want to do business with IBM? Because we have hardware, software services. And then underneath that, there, there are divisions, hardware, software services. And then we'd answer the question, why would you want to do, why would you want to buy software from IBM? And then underneath software, there were five big brands, big divisions, um, which I can't remember what they are anymore, but there was information management, WebSphere, Tivoli, I can't remember. Anyways, there was five of them. Um, and, and I sold a product in one of those divisions. So whenever I went and talked to a, a customer, we would actually position the company, position the division, position our uh, group in the division, and then we would position the product. So it would kind of go like this, like, hey, hi, I'm here to talk to you about this thing. But first, um, we're IBM. Here's why people want to do business with IBM. You know, we do 180 billion revenue. We do hardware, software services. Here's why you care that those three things come together. And by the way, I, we sit in software group. Why would you buy software from IBM? Well, we specialize in middleware and this is why it's good to have your middleware all work together. And that's kind of our area of specialization. One of the things in middleware we do is databases. I'm in the database division. Why would you want to buy databases from IBM? We actually invented the relational database. We hold all the patents. Let me tell you about that. And today we're here to talk about this thing called IBM Information Integrator. It's the world's greatest blah, blah, blah. And then I would position that. Now, that sounds like a lot, and that's an extreme version, IBM. But the reason we do it that way is that the value of being part of IBM uh, was part of the value of this product. If it made more sense to just jump straight to the product and try to pitch you the product independent of anything that IBM could do for you, well, why is it part of IBM's portfolio? Why wouldn't we just have it be its own company, sell it off to somebody else? 
And so, so I think there's cascading levels. More common, what you've got is I've got a company and I've got a couple of products. And so you'd say, look, this is the company. We do this. Our capabilities encompass this. And we're going to help companies like this do these kinds of things. Now, if you're working with us, there's, you know, there's two offerings that we have. And then you would position the offerings independently. Well, are that's are some, there some, sorry, Anna, are there some um, like basic questions? Let's say you're a founder, you're trying to the first time ever you're positioning your company or your product, what are some of the main questions you have to ask yourself or, or to think about that process when you first start thinking about it? <clears throat> like, again, like if you, if the product's not developed yet and you're trying to build it, I, I think you're doing customer discovery and you're trying to figure out again, like who, who do I got to beat in order to win a deal what have I got that's different? And what is the value that I can that I can deliver to customers that's distinctly different from whatever it is that they're doing today or any other competitor they might choose? And I think you got to get really tight on that at the beginning. And you know, it, along with who's my target customer, like who really cares about that value? But I think you also need to be open to the idea that you're going to get it wrong. <laughs> like generally we get it wrong at least a little bit in my experience. So where customer discovery can only take us so far. Um, it's super important to do it. We don't want to skip that step, but we need to kind of say, look, this is a positioning thesis. And in our first wave of customers, we're going to test the thesis and see if it's correct. And maybe it isn't. So maybe a different kind of customer that we never even considered loves our stuff for reasons that we didn't even really deeply understand. And once we start seeing the patterns in that, we have to be able to sort of let go our positioning thesis uh, and pivot the positioning or adjust the positioning so that we're really focused on the place where we know we can win in the market right now. What I think most, most founders do is First of all, they don't, they're not really thinking about positioning in a structured way. They're just sort of like, I got this product and it does this thing. Um, but they're not really thinking about uh, who do I have to beat to win a deal? What kind of customers would like this? And what kind of customers, you know, what kind of customers love this? And what kind of customers are like, eh, this is just okay. And then, and then a thing that I see a lot is founders will often really get married to the, to the thesis, right? This is why we bought it and this is what it looks like. And then they get out and they'll, they're trying to force this product to be this thing that they imagined. Uh, and meanwhile, it's taken off in a different direction. And so you have to be kind of open to the idea that, uh, you know, maybe customers are going to pull you to a place that you didn't think about at the beginning, but might actually be an excellent business. And maybe you should just go with the flow and follow that demand where it's pulling you. Right. Yeah. I've said that I've used this example before. Like you can, like, let's say something that everyone knows, like Mickey Mouse that exists. Like you could maybe think of Mickey Mouse as Disney's intellectual property, but it's not just that. It's also this thing that exists in the minds of every single person who's ever seen Mickey Mouse. And and that's a thing in itself, kind of. What do you think about that metaphor? Do you think that, that it's sort of... It, it, a little, like, yeah, maybe. Like I'll give you, I'll give you, a, I'll give you another one that I, please. here's a company that I think did an amazing job of repositioning stuff. And, you know, I don't usually deal with consumer, but I like pulling out a consumer example once in a while because everybody knows but um the history of arm and hammer baking soda is like amazing so if you look at baking soda it's a cooking ingredient <laughs> so i got this thing it's baking soda i'm making a good business back in the 50s when everyone's cooking 
And then what happens is we have this change in consumer habits where all of a sudden we're buying more processed food, we're not cooking as much. And so the sales of baking soda are going down. So we're arm and hammer, we're sitting around going, this sucks. Um, and somebody smart inside arm and hammer said, you know what? We've noticed this thing because um, baking soda is good for other things. It's not just for cooking. It's actually an amazing deodorant. So um, you can use baking soda to deodorize your fridge or, you know, in your cat litter and all this kind of stuff. And so they recognized that and they said, maybe we can actually take this product and position it in this completely different market space. Now think about the guts it took to do that. I got a thing that's baking. Do I want to bake with deodorant? No, I don't. <laughs> this is a risky move to make. This is say, I'm going to take this thing and I'm going to position it over here and it might not be good for my original market. So I'm going to kind of, you know, in some ways put this market at risk in order to chase what is potentially a much, much bigger market. And so they, they did this shift into this other market. And all of a sudden I've got, you know, arm and hammer in special boxes that go in my fridge. I've got, and I've got this whole line extension thing, right? I've got deodorant for people. I got deodorant for cat boxes. I got deodorant all those stuff. And, and their growth just absolutely exploded and turned into this giant, giant, giant business way beyond what it ever would have been if they had simply stuck to, you know, we're baking ingredient and that's it. So sometimes I think this stuff, there's an opportunity there and you got to be able to let go your positioning baggage in order to actually go chase it. That's a fantastic example. Um, talking about consumer products, uh, I understood that you mostly dealt with B2B markets. but That's my sweet spot. So my background as a VP marketing was all B2B companies. And then as a consultant, I generally just stick to B2B because that's my happy place. Yeah. <laughs> Do you think that there's a big difference between B2C and B2B when it comes to product positioning? So I think there is, but you should take this, you should take this as, you know, just my opinion. And my opinion shouldn't count for much because I'm the B2B lady. So, you know, what comes out of my mouth right now could be stupid. But here's my opinion. My opinion is that positioning is much easier or it's a more straightforward thing when it is a considered purchase. And so what I mean by a considered purchase is it's like the way we, we buy software in businesses. We say, look, I got to buy a new accounting system. I'm just not gonna, I'm not gonna just buy the first accounting system that I cross paths with. I'm gonna make a short list. I'm gonna do my research. I'm gonna spend some time on this. I don't wanna make a bad choice because that's bad and there's repercussions if it's bad. Now, a lot of consumer stuff is not really a considered purchase. It might be slightly considered purchase, but this isn't like, you know, if I'm going to buy bubble gum, I just walk into the store and I pick whatever gum is handy and I don't care that much. And if I made a bad decision, who cares? I wasted a buck. So in consumer, the concept of competitive alternatives is really different because it's not a considered purchase a lot of the time. And so things like distribution and you, you know the, the the convenience of actually making a purchase matter a lot and can be huge differentiators 
on the consumer side in a way that, you know, this is all kind of equal in B2B. Like, you know, we all sell whatever way we need to sell, but it's not that hard to buy and you gotta, you gotta come to us and we're gonna have a conversation. Whereas, you know, it can be an absolute game changer if what you're selling is fizzy water, like you gotta get your fizzy water into the store. Otherwise nobody's ever gonna buy your stuff. Um, and then there's other things, you know, again, like I think there's a lot more, um, like, I don't want to say B2B is not an emotional purchase, because I do think there's a lot of emotions involved in, in, in selling B2B, but the emotions are different, right? Like, we are, we are often on the consumer side, we're buying things really intangible reasons, right? It's for status, it's for making us feel good, it's for making us look good. Um, we do that in B2B as well, but we have to justify it, 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 you know, even if it's emotional purchase, we have to justify it to our boss in kind of non-emotional ways. <laughs> and so, and so, you know, the emotions that we have to worry about in selling in B2B are, you know, the purchaser is generally very worried about making a bad decision and that bad decision is going to look bad on them. It's going to cost them a promotion. Is They're not going to get a raise. They're, you know, people in their department are going to mock them and things like that. Um, and, you know, so they're worried about things like that. There's other things like they're, you know, sometimes they just want to make the safe choice. And sometimes in B2B, we buy software because everyone else is buying it and it's the hotness. <laughs> But we still have to justify it to our boss. You know, the boss is going to look at you and say, are we just buying that because we think it's cool? And you'll say, no, absolutely not. Here are the 15 reasons. <laughs> and so, so there's emotion involved, but we, you know, but you also got to come up with the reason. So I think these are very different when it's, when it's just me and I'm just buying something for myself and it's, you know, it's my money. I get to make decisions however I want. So I don't have to worry too much about the boss. Right. That makes a lot of sense. Uh, is there, um, what are some pitfalls when you start positioning? Are there some common mistakes that people do, even with this methodology? Yeah. People maybe misunderstand. <clears throat> yeah. So I've talked a lot about this, you know, understanding your competitors from a customer point of view. That's a, that's a big pitfall. So people will come and they'll, you know, they'll include all the phantom competitors. They won't include status quo. And so, that's that's common mistake number one. The second one is um, this concept of value is hard. It's hard even for marketers, and we deal in value all the time. But if you've got a team where you know there isn't a lot of experienced marketing uh, folks on the team, um, this concept of I don't sell features. I actually sell what the features can do for a business is really difficult. So you'll get companies and they'll say, you know, you want to buy us because of our blah, 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 AI, machine learning technology. And I'm like, who cares? Who cares? Why does a customer care about that? They don't. They actually care what the machine learning can do for them. And so what I see is a lot of um, positioning where folks are trying to anchor off things that are just features and not actually value for customers. Like, why does a customer care? So that tends to be the step where people have the most trouble and even in the workshops I run with my with my clients, that step between translating features to value is generally the step where we have the most heavy lifting. The last thing I'll say is, I think that right now, um, a lot of companies I think um, are overthinking market category, and so. Here's the thing about market category. That's it's kind of the answer to am I 
email or chat? Am I a database or a business intelligence tool? This is important. Market category is important because what it does is it kind of orients customers a little bit around what you are, but it's only, it only gets you so far. Like it doesn't replace your messaging. It doesn't replace your sales pitch. What it does is it takes a customer that knows nothing and it picks them up and puts them on the road that leads to your product. But you still need messaging and sales and everything else to get them there. Like it's it's not going to get them there on its own. Um, And importantly, what it doesn't do is it doesn't pick up the customer and put them on a road that leads somewhere else. And then your poor sales rep is going to have to lead them all the way around and say, no, 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 no. I need you back over here this way. (laughs) No, we're not email. We're not, we're not. We're this other thing. Please come over here and point this way. Um, so what we have right now in the market is is a little bit of, I think, an unhealthy idea that if you're not creating a brand new market category and positioning yourself in there, then you're just not doing the job right. And I think that's crazy. Like it is much, much easier to position in an existing market category or to anchor off an existing concept to orient a customer in the right direction than it is to, to, you know, to attempt to make up a brand new thing that doesn't orient them at all. And now I have to explain what the new thing is and then get them oriented. And then, and I've added this whole extra step to my thing. So sometimes we have no other choice. Like the, the market category is emerging and we're in that and we have no choice but to actually define the market before we can sell anything. But most of the time we want to we wanna position in the way that makes it easiest to sell. And there's nothing wrong with positioning in an existing market category. In fact, the history of Silicon Valley tells us that for an early stage company or a brand new product, you are much more likely to be successful positioning an existing market category than trying to make up a new one. And so the companies you know and love today are companies that were fast followers into categories after the category was already defined by somebody who ultimately lost it. That's why we don't use Ask Jeeves. That's why we don't use MySpace. That's why we don't know what a creative MP3 player is because those companies um, created the market category and then lost to fast moving um, entrants that came into it after the category was created and then went on to dominate it. So in a company, who does the the work? You've mentioned marketers many times, but could it be the CEO, the product team, or another team? Like who owns product positioning in a company? Yeah. So here's how this works. Like imagine I've got something like, let's take my first product that I ever worked on a repositioning on. Um, We thought it was desktop productivity software, like, like literally a fancy spreadsheet. And what we ended up repositioning it as was an embeddable database for mobile devices. Pretty different market. And in fact, different pricing, different sales model, like literally a new company, like completely different. Do you think I could have made that decision on my own? Probably not. Like, like that's a, that's like making a complete, that's like making a giant change in business strategy. <laughs> and so in my opinion, if we're working on positioning, that is a team effort. And we need sales, product, customer success, the executive team. This, this is everybody at a senior level needs to come together and agree on this because we're all going to need to own executing on it. Um, and generally, the ultimate yes or no on this stuff is going to be the CEO or the founder, whoever runs the joint. 
So in my opinion, it's a team effort. Um, and, and that has to include the most senior people in the company. Now, the next question is, okay, so we've got positioning, but we also know positioning isn't static, right? Our product is not staying the same. Our, our market doesn't stay the same. We have new entrants coming in and coming out. Um, you know, sometimes a big thing like COVID happens and the priorities of your customers change and that results in a need for you to change your positioning. Um, so in my opinion, um, somebody needs to be the steward of positioning, which is, you can kind of think of it as like the positioning police. <laughs> so somebody needs to own um, making sure that we're being consistent in the positioning out, of, out in the market. Someone also needs to own getting the gang together to go check in on it regularly so that we're looking at whether or not we need to adjust it. So back when I was a vice president of marketing inside companies, I always did that. So I, you know, I became the steward of positioning. So we would do the positioning exercise with the team. And then I would be the person that set the meeting every six months to get the gang back together and say, okay, here's a little positioning check-in, competitive alternatives. Has anything changed here? Capabilities, has anything changed? Uh, it, you know, and we would do this quickie review of it. And if the answer was no, no, everything's the same, then we'd say, good, we're not touching the positioning yet. So we'll go and I'll see you in six months. Um, I also owned, you know, as the head of marketing, I had messaging and I owned the creation of a lot of the sales materials. So that put me in a good position to be making sure that in our comms, at least, we were being consistent in how we represented the positioning out to the market. Um, but that, you know, even though I was the steward, that doesn't mean that I get to own it because I certainly don't get to wake up in the morning and decide, you know what? I don't think we're a database anymore. I think we're a business intelligence tool. And then I just send the email to the CEO. I, I made this decision this morning. You cool? <laughs> no, I don't get to do that. It's a great answer. Um, I think we're coming towards the end, but one question at least. Um, an early stage startup that's doing this for the first time how should they identify the need to reposition their product? Yeah, so so you know, coming back to this idea that when you're when you're first creating a product, what you've got is a thesis, and so you should be testing that thesis. Every deal that you're doing is you'll be like, you know, who did we compete with? How did we win? You know, and and does that match with the positioning I've got? Um, and if it doesn't, I think you're going to have to take a step back and look at your positioning and make an adjustment. If you've got something in the market already and you're not sure whether the positioning is good, um, the most common signs of weak positioning that I see are, um, so you'll have this situation where you've got existing customers and the existing customers love you. Like they love you. They're like, Oh my God, this is great. We, we you know, you, they, you hardly ever lose one. There's no churn. They love you. This is an indication that your product is good, right? People, people love you. They bought the thing. It's amazing. They're all happy. But when you're having a first call with someone or a first conversation with someone, or even in your marketing efforts, people are super confused. They're like, and so I used to do this thing where if you hired me as the new VP marketing, the first thing I do for the first few weeks is I just sit in on sales calls with customers and you'll see the weak positioning show up like this. You, you got all these super happy customers, but a first call with a customer, your rep is in there, does the spiel and you can see everybody's looking like this, just this face, you know, <laughs> it's like, 
and then they're, they'll be like, your, your rep will do this perfect spiel on what it is. And the customer will go, pitch it to me again. <laughs> like they have no idea what it is. Or they'll ask you these questions that you think are just stupid. Like, so they'll say, so you're just like Salesforce then. And you'll be like, oh God, no, we're nothing like Salesforce. Like, why are you even asking that? And so that you'll, you'll feel it in these early sales calls like this. And what it is, is there's a gap between what your good, happy customers know about you and what you're representing in a pitch. And that gap is this, you know, your positioning is not closing the gap between those two things. And so if your positioning was good, it, people early in the sales process would feel what these happy customers out the other end of the sales process already know. So that's usually one of the signs. So it's, they don't understand what you do. They, they do not get the value of what you do. They compare you to competitors that in your, in your opinion, aren't even competitors. And that's usually a sign that there's something in your positioning that just isn't working. Great. Great. Well, um, do you have any last tips for anybody who's interested in product positioning? Uh, not really. Well, okay, two. So one is um, the more you're aware that it's a thing and you have a way to think about it, um, the more likely it is that you're going to do a good job of it. That's the first thing. The second thing is, though, like, because it's a team sport, you know, you're going to have to get everybody in the company involved in doing a repositioning. Like, even if you're the CEO, I don't think you can just do it on your own. Because if your head of sales doesn't deeply understand it and own it, they're going to end up positioning it some other way out in the market. Same deal with your head of product, same deal with your head of marketing. So you're going to have to get the gang together. But if you're getting the gang together to work on positioning, you can't just bring everyone into the room and have a loosey goosey chat about it. Like <laughs> you're going to have to come with the methodology because if you don't, what happens is everybody's going to get in the room and you're going to say, so why do customers love us? And you know what, they know what that is? That's a battle of opinions. There'll be a thousand opinions and everybody in the room, like including people that never talk to customers will say, well, I think they love us because of X, Y, Z. You know, I really think this is true. And, and, and how do you resolve that? You can't. So what you need is you need to come with a methodology for the team to work through together that as much as possible takes the opinions out of it. So that's what I was trying to build the whole time when I was internal. That's what I think my methodology does. It doesn't have to be my methodology, just anybody's methodology, but you need to come with something because otherwise what you'll get is just a battle of opinions. And I'll tell you something, marketing never wins that fight. <laughs> product never doesn't win that fight either that fight is won by the head of sales or the ceo typically the ceo but sometimes the head of sales and and you know the head of sales is is like i hate to say it but often wrong <laughs> fantastic well thank you good so much good note yeah definitely thank Great. you so much for the amazing tips um april and thanks for joining us on the podcast well thanks so much for having me this was fun I hope you enjoyed your visit to that conversation as much as we did. Now, if you want to stay updated and keep in touch with us, please subscribe to us on YouTube, follow us on Spotify, subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts and all other podcast platforms. We're also on Twitter, Instagram, and then Facebook. You guessed it, Soap by Slush. Thank you people for listening. Bye-bye.